the reading comes from Habakkuk verses, chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 4. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have adorned them, ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, and what answer I give to, and and what answer I am to give to to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, "Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time; it speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, and it will certainly come and, not, and will not delay." See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Habakkuk chapter 1, minor prophet. We started looking at um, a prophet who was seeing very, very dark times in Judah. And we talked about how we move from worry to worship and from fear to faith. And the means by which God wants to grow us in those dark times. And in our country for the past 40 years, we have this strange, false, historical expectation that our lives are going to get better and our children's lives will be better than ours and there will be this constant movement of an increase in standard of living. And that our homes will appreciate and our salaries will go up and we'll retire better than our parents retired. And our children will retire better than we've retired. And when we talk like that, we become like hobbits. Hobbits. Tolkien, in his series, writes this of the hobbits. And it was astonishing when I read this again. He writes, the hobbits established their home in the Shire and after thousands of years, little troubled by wars, they prospered and multiplied and became accustomed to plenty. Sound familiar? And then he writes, they came to think that peace and plenty were the rule of Middle Earth and the right of all sensible folk. The problem with that, my beloved, is the Bible and Job and Habakkuk and the psalmist tell you that's not reality. That's not human history. We know that just in looking at the 20th century alone, that our lives do not progress in such a fanciful manner. What if the future holds for us dark times? Difficult times. The question for you that God is posing and that Habakkuk is posing is, how will you handle them? How will you make your way through them? Will you be destroyed by them or will you grow? Will you forsake God or will you submit yourself again and again to His throne? There's a right way and a wrong way to approach difficult times. Now Habakkuk starts off in his prayer in verses 1 through 4 and it's almost a complaint because he's saying to God, There's so much evil and so much injustice and so much morality in Judah. We're supposed to be your chosen people. We're supposed to bring salvation to the world. And it's a total mess. 
As we saw last week, God answers him. And he says, it is. And it's going to get worse. Because I'm raising up the Babylonians. A bloodthirsty, ruthless people who will come and destroy your city. And destroy the temple. And tear down the walls. And take you into exile. And that's where we pick up in, in verse 12. And Habakkuk says, that's a terrible answer, Lord. Look at what he writes in verse 12 and following. He says, O Lord, you have appointed them, the Babylonians, to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And Habakkuk is saying, the Babylonians? You've got to be kidding. Judah's bad, but they're worse. They don't recognize you at all. And you're going to have them exercise judgment and justice on us? And so he cries out to God and God gives him an answer. He doesn't like the answer, so he cries out again. And then in verses 1 through 4, something extraordinary happens. Because Habakkuk stops and he waits. Hence the title of the sermon, Waiting on the Lord. He cries out to God, God gives him an answer. He doesn't like it. He cries out again and before God speaks in totality, Habakkuk stops. And he says, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to see what you do. You've heard this phrase, waiting on the Lord. I mean, it's, it's a Christian cliche, right? Someone's going through a difficult time, you say, how are you handling it? I'm waiting on the Lord. Someone says, oh, I, you're looking for a job, how's that going? I'm waiting on the Lord. I don't, I, I, in, this, in the Christian, I don't even know what that really means. People say it, it's cliche. I know it does not mean I'm doing nothing, and oftentimes we, I'm just waiting, I'm just going to see what he's going to do. And we wait year after year after year after year. It doesn't mean that. It sounds spiritual. The scriptures actually define it. In many places the Bible does, but specifically here in verses 1 through 4. We get a very clear definition from Habakkuk and his example of what it means to wait on the Lord. Five things I want to drop in this passage, and hopefully you'll be patient with me. First is waiting on the Lord means this. We are called to wait on Him patiently, with vision, in obedience, for Him, and joyfully. Patiently, with vision, in obedience, for Him, and, and joyfully. Let's do the first one. Waiting on the Lord means waiting patiently. Look at, verse, look at verse 3 in chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. This is God now answering Habakkuk back and he says, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, he says to Habakkuk, wait for it. And God is saying, I heard your cry, I gave you an answer. You cried out again, but you've got to know something. You're not going to like my answer, you're not going to understand my answer, but the revelation is true, it is coming, but you must wait for it. He's telling Habakkuk, it's going to linger, but because it lingers, doesn't mean that it's not coming. Wait. Be patient. In fact, the word wait in the Hebrew, it literally means to pierce or to adhere to or to fix steadfast. Wait, Habakkuk. Be patient. You go to the doctor's office, and you're waiting for the doctor. One half hour, 45 minutes, and you say, that's it. I'm a busy person too, and you leave. You weren't patient. You're not seen, right? You go to the grocery store and you have a bag of groceries and you're, the line is 16 people. You know it's three or more and they're going to open up a new, but they never do, right? So you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. You said, forget it. I'm going to go get Kentucky Fried Chicken. You're not patient. You didn't wait to get what it was you desired. 
Waiting in the Lord fundamentally, baseline means that we must be patient in Him. We must wait on His work and His timing. That means this. If you're confused, wait. If, if things in your life are going really badly and it's causing anger and frustration, if dark times have come upon you or your family or our country, you don't jettison God. You wait on Him. You submit to Him again and again and again. You may say, you know, I prayed and I listen and I hear no answer. You may say, being patient, pastor, is easier said than done, and I agree. But it's not impossible in Christ. Being patient is not like a germ that you just catch. I want to be patient, but I can't. Someone has to pass it on to me. The Bible actually teaches us two fundamental ways to be patient in the Lord. Fundamental things that we're actually called to actively do. Let me give you them really quickly. Number one, patience is produced in the believer's life when you deliberately... You deliberately humble yourself before God. You actively and intentionally bring yourself before a holy God and you submit to Him. James chapter 4. Great. Listen. James writes, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. In verse 15 he writes, Instead you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. How much of our impatience is the result of an expectation that we've set up and we expect God to follow through with our will rather than us submitting to His? And then when things don't go the way we want it, what happens? We get angry. We get frustrated. We get depressed and we turn away. And you say, and these are emotions that I cannot control. That's a lie. It's a lie to say that there are responses you have to expectations falter that you cannot control. The assumption that James is saying is stop pretending you're omniscient. Put the omniscience aside. You're not omniscient. God is. That means this. When you say, this is a catastrophe. And someone says, why? Because this means I'll never get married. This means I'll never get that job. I'll never live in that neighborhood. How do you know? How do you know such things? Only someone omniscient knows that when the crisis takes place, it will change life in a particular direction. How do you know? God knows. You don't. I don't. Assumed omniscience, my beloved, is a terrible burden to carry. The very thing you think is ruining your life may be the very thing that's actually saving your life. Patience in God. Not freaking out when small crises come into our lives. Patience. Not being turned upside down and screaming out the sky is falling. Patience. First, an act of deliberate humility before God. Where you say, I'm not omniscient, he is. But there's something else that you need to do. An active, intentional act as well. You need to see, now listen, and listen closely, because you're going to hear this and go, this is ridiculous. You need to see the hard times, the dark times, the evil times, the crises, as growth opportunities. Now that's exactly what you would hear from a pastor's preaching from the Word of God, right? I mean, who says that kind of stuff? The Bible does. And the reason we have to say it again and again, because that's not the natural response to difficult times. But the Bible says, these are times of growth. When it's the hardest, that's that's the ripest time for you to be transformed in Christ. How do I know this? Listen. Scriptures teach that the hard times can make you into someone great. James again, James chapter 1. He said, consider it pure joy. (laughs) Are you listening? That's a bit humorous. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Hmm. 
Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You say, James is a fanatic. Alright, how about Paul? Paul, Romans chapter 5, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Do you see? God doesn't say, be patient and figure out how you do it. He says, be patient. I'm omniscient, you're not. Be patient and know that these times of crisis, these dark times, are radical opportunities for you to grow deep in me. To be changed. Your character changed in me. Listen. Whenever we go through hard times, you're going to change one way or the other. The only question is, how are you going to change? Are you going to come unraveled or you become stronger? Will you move to God or away from God? Will you flail about screaming, why me, why me? Or will you say, all right, Lord, I know you have a plan for this, even though I don't get it. When my middle son, Brandon, was about three or four, we were in the backyard, and I was working in the backyard, and he was on the swing set, and he slipped off the swing. And he impaled himself on a three-inch screw underneath his armpit. Yeah. And so I hear this screaming, and I turn around and look up, and all I see is blood pouring down his side. And I'm thinking, he had an artery. You know, he's dead in two minutes. So I go running up there, and I, you know, grab my shirt, and I unhook him from the swing, and I pack his arm, and I yell to Lori, get in the car. We take him to the emergency room. And uh, the doctors are great. It's a local clinic. And they, it needed to be addressed immediately. They give him shots of Novocaine. For some reason, the Novocaine's not taking. And they said, listen, we can't wait. We've got to sew him up whether he feels it or not. I said, all right. And so I, I held him down. I looked at him. I said, listen to me. This is going to hurt. It's going to hurt bad. But if you don't hold still, they're not going to be able to fix your arm. You've got to hold still. You flail around... We're in bad shape. You hold still, no matter how hard it hurts, and we'll get out of here and we'll go home. And he looks at me with these big chocolate eyes. He goes, okay, Dad. And he didn't flinch. He didn't flinch. He's tough. Three years old. The question for us during the hard times, do you flail around, do you move around, or do you stop and wait and be patient on God to change you and transform you? To build your character. To make you into the person that Christ wants you to be and you want to be that you can't be unless the hard times are there. Job got this. You know, Job is like a... Habakkuk is like a mini Job. A a Reader's Digest version of Job. It really is. And Job is going through incredible trials and incredible suffering. And in, in the middle of the book, in chapter 23, he says something profound. He says... In verse 10, but he, God, knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And Job says, I don't get it. I don't know why my children have been killed. I don't know why I've lost my estates. I don't know why I'm sitting here on this dunghill covered with sores. I don't get it, but God does. And when he has tested me, when I come out on the other end, I'm going to be like gold. The pressure was making him better. It was purifying him. So first, saints... If you want to wait on God at all, you must wait patiently. Not his, not your timeline, his timeline. Not your expectations, his expectations. Second thing, to wait on the Lord. Listen, it means you must wait with vision. Now, how do we get that here in this passage? Look at verse 1, chapter 2 again. This is Habakkuk now, and he says, I will stand at my watch, and I will station myself on the rampart. I will look to see... What he will say to me. What is Habakkuk doing? 
that the rampart, and I don't even know why they translate in the NIV. It means tower. It means watchtower. So Habakkuk says, listen, I'm going to climb up to the watchtower and I'm going to wait and I'm going to see and I'm going to listen as to what you are going to do. I don't get it. I don't like your answer one bit, Lord, but I'm going to wait and see. Now watchtowers during this time, they were very important for cities. They were placed strategically in a city area where someone could climb up and look out and they could see if weather was coming, they could tell the people, prepare yourself, a storm's coming. If the enemy was coming, they could say, prepare yourself, we need to fight. If a dignitary was coming, they'd say, prepare yourself, the king is coming. Or someone bearing good news or bad news. The watchtower was a very important place. Because from the watchtower, you could get perspective. You could see above ground level. If, for example, an enemy was coming, let's say the enemy was at the gate. And it was a strong force. And someone ran up into the tower and they looked out and they saw reinforcements coming ten times as strong. What different news they would bring to the city. Not, we're doomed, but... Just hold on, because help's coming. Perspective, an eternal perspective. And what Habakkuk is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to climb into the spiritual watchtower, and I'm going to wait for you, Lord. I'm going to watch for you, and I'm going to listen for you. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to flail around. I'm going to watch, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to glean a perspective that's yours and not mine, that's eternal and not temporal. Practically, how do we do this? I mean, how do we climb up into... The watchtower. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 with one word. He says, I consider. He writes in Romans chapter 8 verse 18, listen. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, for those of you who know the life of the Apostle Paul, that man suffered. He suffered in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. So how did he get through his dark times? How did he make it through the suffering and the trials and the persecution? He says, I contemplate. I meditate. On what? On the glory that's going to come when Christ comes again. He says, I contemplate deeply. I think and I think and I think about the glory that I have in Christ already and that will be poured out on me when he comes again in glory. And then, when I do that, all the suffering and all the hardship, it seems minuscule, petty. Climb up into the watchtower, and consider as well. It looks like this. When you're really sick or you're injured, let's do sickness. And you climb up into God's watchtower and you look out and you realize that the worst sickness, the ultimate sickness, which was what your sin, Christ has paid for already and He's already healed you. And therefore no sickness, no disease can ever touch you again because Christ has healed you. You have that perspective. Let's say, for example, that you are in debt right now. It was a time of the, of the economic downturn. And things are difficult right now. You climb into that watchtower and you realize the only debt that you really owe, the greatest debt you ever owed, has been paid in full by Christ. Not only that, not only are you ultimately debt-free, but He has riches that He's going to pour out on you. Perspective. Coming off ground level, going up in the tower and seeing things as God sees them. That means taking your story and putting it into the Bible. Taking your narrative and putting it into the gospel narrative. So you will see correctly and you will wait on Him. So waiting requires patience. Waiting requires you to see and have a vision of what God is doing and has already done in Christ. Third thing, waiting requires obedience. Look again at the passage with me, if you will. At verse 1, another piece of this, what Habakkuk was doing. It says, I will stand at my watch. You know, that's a, that's a military term. 
the sentries would stand post at their watch. And they would not leave their post until they were relieved by another sentry. And if you've ever served in the military, you had ever had an opportunity to stand watch, you do not leave until you're relieved. You do not leave until you're relieved. Why? I mean, in a real situation, in the city, if the sentry left the post, I mean, imagine the sentry's been up there for months on end, maybe years, and you know what? I have been up here for years, and I've never seen an enemy anywhere near. I, I'm going to cut off early tonight. I'm going to go home and see my wife. Why? Why? You know, I didn't see the sense of it. I was standing up here. I got a little bored, a little sleepy, tired. Circumstances did not dictate whether or not a sentry stayed their post. They stayed their post no matter what. You see where I'm going with this. They never said to themselves, you know, this, is, this isn't working out for me. <laughs> I'm going to try something else on. Habakkuk was showing us that even when we're struggling, even when dark times are upon us, even when we're suffering, we are called and commanded to never, ever leave our post. You're a believer. Don't leave your post. Don't forsake Christ. Don't disobey because things aren't going your way. When evil times come, will you submit to God during those times, even when you want to flee? Waiting, my beloved. The word in the Hebrew, I mean, we think wait, okay, just stand still. Or worse yet, we think wait, don't do anything. But we actually translate it quite well in our own culture. When you go to a restaurant to eat, who serves you? A waiter or a waitress. Hmm, why? Because they're serving. The heart of the word to wait on the Lord is to serve the Lord. That means you never stop serving, no matter how hard it gets. You never stop serving no matter how dark your life is. No matter how confused, how angry, how upset you are. When you're praying to God and you're not hearing God respond to you, you don't say, you know what, that's it, I'm leaving my post. You keep doing. Now our response, unfortunately, is not this. It's not the steadfast military stand your post, do not leave. It is, you know what, I've tried this, I've tried praying. And it's really not working out for me, so I'm going to try something else. And what we do is we cease to be obedient. And it works out like this. We, we kind of push our Bible aside. Yeah, I'm not interested in reading this right now. I've read this and I've sought counsel and I'm not getting it. We stop praying. I cried out to God again and again and again. He doesn't answer me, so I'm going to stop praying. We stop going to church sporadically at first. We stop attending corporate prayer. We stop with our small groups. We stop functionally doing the fundamental things that God calls us to do. We stop serving in ministry. And bit by bit, we leave our post pulling away, pulling away, until before we knew it, there's no obedience to God at all. There's no waiting. Once someone wrote a letter to John Newton, the famous hymn writer and pastor, and she wrote this. She said, I'm getting nothing out of my prayers. And Newton said, well, I can tell you absolutely, you'll get nothing if you stop praying. He said more pointedly, if you're getting nothing from trying every day to go to the throne of grace, I can absolutely assure you, you will get nothing by staying away. Keep it up. Don't stop. Still pray, still gather, still read, still study, still meditate, still, no matter how much you think God is away from you or not communicating to you, no matter how confused you are, no matter how much you're hurting, stand your post. But it's not just that we don't do the things that we ought during these difficult times. We also then move and engage in the things that we ought not. 
Right? I mean, you're hurting, and you're suffering, and you're crying out to God, and you're receiving no apparent relief from God. And so what do we do? What do we turn to? You know what we turn to. False saviors, right? Saviors of another kind. And for for you, it may be different than for me, but you'll turn. If you're not hearing from God, you'll turn to food. If you're not hearing from God, you'll turn to sex, or you'll turn to music, or entertainment, or sleep, or whatever. You move away from God instead of standing your post. Habakkuk said, I'm going to go to the watchtower and I'm going to stand here until I hear from you. I'm going to remain faithful. I'm going to remain obedient. So waiting in the Lord means you must wait patiently. You must wait with vision. You must be obedient. And guess, the hardest time to be obedient is when you don't want to be obedient, right? I mean, we know this. If I say to my oldest son, Kirk, go eat a bowl of ice cream. He'll say, okay, Dad, real tough. He'll eat a bowl of ice cream. Now, if I say, Kirk, clean up all the dishes from all the ice cream eating, he'd say, hmm. Obedience during the difficult times tells us whether or not you truly are obedient. It's easy to be obedient when we do, we're doing that which we want to do. Difficult when we struggle. Number four, ready? If you're going to wait on the Lord, you must wait for Him. What does that mean? I mean, isn't it implicit that I'm, if I'm waiting on the Lord or waiting for the Lord, I'm waiting for Him? Yes and no. Let's not lose the look of the forest from the trees here. Let's pull back up to about 20,000 feet and get a, a more um, God-centric evaluation. We go into the tower and we wait no matter what. Why? Here in Habakkuk, I'm waiting for an answer. But was he just waiting for an answer? Remember, he is a faithful, unconditional wrestler. That means he's going to stay in that watchtower until he dies if he has to. Why? Because Habakkuk got it. He wasn't just waiting for God's voice. He wasn't just waiting for God's things. He was waiting for God. He wanted Him. Do you see the difference? It's imperative that you do, or you will do nothing but engage in religion. Waiting in the Lord means you're waiting for Him, His love, His person, His relationship. Not just the things that you get from Him. I mean, there's no better teaching of this than Job itself. Do you remember the very beginning of Job? Satan comes into God's courts and God is extolling Job's virtues and he says, God said this, he said, There is no one on earth like Job. This is God speaking. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan says to him, really? Does Job fear thee for naught? I mean, really, God, do you believe that Job is only serving you and praying to you and sacrificing to you and following you because he loves you? I mean, come on. And Satan says, I'll tell you exactly why Job is faithful. I'll tell you exactly why he's blameless. He likes your things. Look what you've done. The hedge of protection. You've given him popularity, you've given him fame, you've given him money, you've given him family. This man is revered. He loves your things, God, not you. He wants your blessings, not your person. Job proved Satan wrong. Job proved faithful, but listen, he's spot on with us. Is he not? I mean, Satan was speaking truth about fallen man. How often do we come to God early on because we need something, right? I mean, our husband or wife just left, so I run to God. 
My business just went belly up, so I run to God. I'm, I'm, I'm diagnosed with a terminal illness, so I run to God. Why are we running to God? Not because we want Him. We want Him to do something for us. Fix my marriage. Give me my business back. Make me well. We can go so far as this. Even when the Holy Spirit moves in your heart and you begin to see yourself as a sinner, why do you go to God? You cry out for mercy. God, forgive me. Now, there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's the way that you must come to the Lord by seeing your sin and crying out for mercy and receiving. But you can't stay there. That's not a relationship. You can't stay in a relationship where you serve God only to get the things that He can give you. It must grow. It must mature. And I, I'm afraid that much of the church has not moved beyond that moment of, Lord, save me. It's wrong for two reasons. One, the Bible commands us, first and foremost, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of who you are, love Him. Okay, that doesn't say use Him, love Him. But something more practical for us, we get this, it's so hypocritical. And you hate it yourself. If you're only using God so that He will bless you and, and find you a wife or husband or get you the job, that's no relationship, that's usury. Have you had this relationship before? Or maybe you've read about it yourself. You're in a relationship with someone because you have perks. Maybe you have Giants tickets now. Hmm, you'll become a friend to someone. Maybe you have money that you give away. Maybe you have friends that people like and they want to be friends with your friends as well. Maybe you stand in a position in a company that can get them a job. And so a relationship forms, or so you think, and they spend time with you, and you engage with them. And then what happens one day if you lose all the perks? You lose the Giants tickets, you lose your money, you lose your job. And they say, you know what, I really don't want to be friends with you anymore. What becomes plain? They never were. There was never a relationship. It was only usury in nature. They wanted your things and not you. And how does that make you feel? Used, dehumanized, objectified. I mean, don't you? You know that's wrong. You say, you never loved me. They say, no, I really didn't. I just wanted your things. What does that create in you? Anger, animosity, grief. But don't we do that to God? And isn't an infinite holy God infinitely more grieved than we when we do that to Him when we come to Him we say God bless me God heal me God make my marriage right I don't want you I want your things Habakkuk climbed that tower and he said I'm standing my post because I want you God I mean he gave him the answer in verses 5 through 11 he didn't like it he said I'm not leaving I don't, the answer I don't like but I want you more than the answer the answer I don't get Lord but I want you more than the relief of my people I want you Lord do you see how important this is? Fundamentally, waiting in the Lord means waiting for Him and in Him because ultimately what you want most is that relationship over the things. We know this because in verse 12, after receiving this really bad reply that the Babylonians were going to come, he says, Yahweh Elohim Kadash, my Lord, my God, my Holy One. He says, I don't get it but I want you more than the answer. I don't understand it, but I want you more than my own life and the life of my people. When you're wrestling with God, is this how you approach Him? Is this how your relationship is divine through Christ? Him, not His things. 
you, my, my beloved, if you say, no, you know what, I realize now in this moment that I want his things more than I want him, you can get there too. And the way you get there, believe it or not, is through the tough times. Because during the tough times, God's asking you a question. He says to this, listen, now we're going to find out. Times are tough, right? Darkness has come upon you. You're sitting on your dung pile and you're scratching your sores. You're just like Job. Now we're going to find out. Do you follow me? Do you serve me to get my things so I can serve you? Or do you follow me and serve me because you love me? My beloved, there's no more fundamental question you could ever ask yourself in regards to this faith we call Christianity. His things are him. Serving him to use him or serving him out of a deep gratitude and love because of the work of Christ. If you wait patiently, with vision, obediently for him, you know what's going to happen? Pressure's going to come. You're going to be squeezed like a lump of coal. But if you persevere in the midst of it all, for all the right reasons, you know what's going to happen? You're going to come out like a diamond. You'll be like Job, coming out as pure gold. The tough times, if approached properly in Christ, will strengthen you and transform you into a radical disciple of Jesus. You won't stay the same. You'll grow. And you say, this sounds painful. It is. But let me get to my last point and we'll close because you can do all this joyfully. And I'm not just spoofing you. You can do it with not so much joy, but why would you? If you can go through all the dark times, if you can be ultimately patient and you can be obedient and you can have vision, an eternal vision, and follow Him because you want Him with joy, wouldn't that be better than just kind of all the way through life? Of course it would. Look at verse 4. Waiting in the Lord joyfully. This is God begins His response to Habakkuk, which we're going to look at in detail next week. And in his response, he says to Habakkuk, See, he is puffed up. He is Babylon. He said, They're puffed up. You're right. Babylon's desires are not upright. Then he says, But the righteous will live by his faith. He's saying, Habakkuk, you're right. This is not going to make sense to you. The Babylonians are, are wicked, cruel, ruthless people. Their time will come. We're going to look at that also. But he says here, the righteous will live by faith. Now, you've heard this before. Paul uses it in Galatians. He uses it in Romans. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10. This theme, this is a, a dominant theme going all the way back to Genesis and through Revelation. The righteous will live by faith. Why is that so important? Listen, this is why. You can move through your hard times. Stoically. Right? Stubbornly. Get a little cold hearted and just try to rough your way through it. Or you can move through the difficult times in life rejoicing in Christ. Where the circumstances will not determine your state of mind. Being tossed about on the waves. So instead of you being, your, your, your mind, your heart, your behavior, your moods being determined if things are good, when things are good, you're good, when things are bad, you're bad. This defines the church today in many ways. An emotional roller coaster. You can either have that define you, or you can have, listen, the work of Christ, the gospel itself, define you and strengthen you during the dark times. It's one or the other. And when someone says to you, How are you? you say, You know what? It's been a real hard day. I mean, I woke up and my shoulder was bum and I could barely get to work because I'm driving my left hand. You know, I get to work and I got all these problems and the kids are sick. You know, my wife, she's. I, 
I'm affected by this. Or you can be affected by the gospel of grace. You say, this, really? The gospel? Yes, the gospel is there to save you and it's there to sanctify you. It's to give you hope and joy in the darkest of times. It's not just something we sing about or share with the lost. It's something we are to meditate on. So that, that joy will overcome us even in the moments that would seem most joyless. How do you get it? In Luke chapter 12, Christ is telling his disciples a parable. And I'll paraphrase it and then give you one verse. He's telling them the parable about the servants and the master. And the master goes away, remember? And there are two groups of servants. One, one group, they remain faithful and they remain obedient because they think the master's coming back. And then there's the other group. Of course, we're never in that other group, right? And the other group, these are the servants who say, you know, he's not coming back. And they're unfaithful and they're disobedient and they do the things that he doesn't want them to do. And Christ comes along and he says this. He says, wait for me. Remain obedient. Remain faithful because I'm coming back. But then he says something extraordinary in Luke 12, 37. And maybe you didn't catch it, but catch it now. He said this. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching, waiting when he comes. He says, I tell you the truth. He, this is Christ, the master, will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Did you hear that? Christ is, whenever Jesus says, verily, verily, Listen. He's saying, this is huge. Listen. Because when I come again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dress myself. The word in the, in the Greek is literally gird. I know that's a weird word. Gird. They had robes back then. And they would tie it up or they tuck it in their belt. Why? So they could work. So they could run. So they could exercise. So they could focus on something with great intensity. I mean, the metaphor here is that Christ was going to focus with great intensity on bringing joy to his disciples. Did you hear that? Jesus Christ is saying to them, listen, I'm going to focus. I'm going to gird myself up. I'm going to focus all my energies on inflicting upon you all the joy, all the honor, all the glory, and all the happiness that I received from my Father in my obedience to him. What? Did you hear that? Because if you did, you'd be going, that's just... He says, wait for me. And if you do, if you wait faithfully and patiently and obediently and in love for my Father, if you wait for me, then when I come, I'm going to wait on you in such a radical way that you cannot begin to imagine the glory I will pour out. I'm going to gird up my life. This is... This is the second person of the holy triune God. This is the creator of the entire universe saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to pour out my joy on you. I'm going to inflict with great intensity my joy and my glory and my honor and my happiness on you. Wait. Why wouldn't you wait for that? The statement is so utterly radical that many in the early church reinterpreted it to mean something other because they cannot imagine the creator of the universe waiting on us like that. He's saying, serve me faithfully, and I will serve you. Don't ever leave me. Love me until your last breath, and then I will come and love you with an eternal, everlasting love. If that's true, if there's any hint of that being true, then the only question is, why wouldn't you wait now? 
Why wouldn't you be patient now? Why wouldn't you be faithful and obedient now? Why wouldn't you cast your eyes on an eternal vision now? Why won't you stay in the watchtower and stand your post now? Why? Christ went to the cross and endured infinite suffering to bring us infinite joy. You know this. Jesus Christ patiently endured the full wrath of God so that you and I, those saved by grace, who have repented and believed, can at some point in time not only have what we have in Him now, but ultimately forever and ever have that joy and have the glory that He received and then ascribes to us. When you see Him doing this, engaging in this ultimate sacrifice, how can you not wait? How can you not When he comes again in glory, the scriptures say, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation. Fix your hope on him. Fix your hope on what he's coming to do. Fix your hope on the eternal. The hymn goes like this and we'll close. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand, And leads me through the promised land. What a day. What a glorious day that will be. Sing that to yourself. In your darkest times. What a day that will be. Wait on the Lord. Let's pray. Father this waiting is hard. You call us to do that which seems impossible. And yet we know it's not. Because you say at the same time we can do all things through you because you strengthen us. I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, Lord, for those first that are in the midst of dark times. That you would give them the patience. You would give them the desire. You would give them the obedience. You would give them the vision. You would give them the love. And you would give them the joy to wait on you. That they would not turn to the left or the right. They would not step down from their post. But they would wait. For those that are waiting, Lord, I pray that you encourage them and give them great strength to continue to do so. I pray that we would be a church that faithfully waits on you every moment of every day, seeking to do your will. Give us this eternal vision. Let it never pass from us, Lord. I pray that we are in that watchtower seeing your great hand unfold the gospel story in our lives, in this church, in this community, and throughout the world. And then make us active participants in that story. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.